let's go ahead and read verses 8 through 11. 8 through 11 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Obviously, this is a small letter that Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna. It's the smallest of all the letters that we're going to be studying in this series. But even though it is small, it doesn't mean it doesn't pack a very powerful punch. It has a lot that can be said. It has a lot that we need to talk about tonight as we look at the church in Smyrna. So before we get into uh, what is said about Smyrna... Is there any background information or something about the city of Smyrna itself or this letter to the church in Smyrna that you'd like to mention? One thing I found, kind of like Ephesus last week, I, so I looked into the history of Smyrna, the city that this congregation would be meeting in, because a lot of times that kind of helps build out the context of the type of people we're talking to and the culture they're living in and kind of the time frame around them. And Smyrna is an interesting city, and I didn't know this, but one thing that was really unique or very spe specific to Smyrna, Smyrna uh, compared to the seven churches here, seven cities we're going to be looking at, is the presence of emperor worship in Smyrna. And so just like many other cities in that day and age, they had a lot of temples to other pagan gods and whatnot. There was a golden street that were lined with other idols and uh, figurines of different uh, gods that they would bow down to. But the thing that Smyrna was really known for was emperor worship. Starting back in 193 BC, they had they built one of the first uh, temples to the, the the really the goddess of Rome, the spirit of Rome, you could say. But then by the time this letter is written, you not only have um, in 8023 they build the first synagogue, almost like a, a, a church service worshiping the whoever whoever the emperor is of that day. But then by the time this letter is written, you have Domitian saying, "Okay, and I deserve to be worshipped like a god." And so not only is this a city like Ephesus, like Athens that Paul would visit in Acts chapter 17 when you walk through and you see the different pagan gods, but at the end of that street you're also going to see whatever, whoever that emperor is of that day and age. And they're going to be worshiping him like a god. And so it just kind of raises the stakes there a little bit of just the type of pagan worship going on in Smyrna. And so I think that, that helped me give an, get an idea of, a, of what these Christians were having to work against and um, live in the middle of while this letter is being written to him. One of the things I found to be interesting was the, uh, uh, the city of Smyrna, the church in Smyrna wasn't mentioned previously in scripture either uh, prior to Revelation. So we don't really know a lot about the church there other than what we, uh, what we read right here. We do know where it was positioned. It was close to Ephesus, uh, maybe within 40 miles of Ephesus. So the thought is that, that Paul likely had something to do with establishing uh, that church in Smyrna. Something I learned as well is uh, the word Smyrna means or it comes from the word myrrh. So when you think of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it was a place that was known for this spice that uh, really only gave off its savor if it was ground up 
and that might have some relevance as we talk about the the things that uh, the Church of Smyrna was going. I might have a thing or two other, but I don't want to take all your stuff there. Ben. Well, I mean that's that's a great point. I didn't know that about Myrrh. That's a great point. When you when I when I was looking at the context of the church in Smyrna, uh, I saw the emperor worship. I also saw uh, that they also had temples to Greco-Roman gods that people would come and worship. Same as Ephesus, uh, they had one to Dionysus who was the god of, of wine and the god of partying and the god of uh, fruitfulness. Uh, so obviously there is a lot of sin going on around the church of Smyrna. Not only do we have uh, worshiping the emperor, we have worshiping other gods. And so just as Jay was starting to talk about, the church in Smyrna would have stuck out like a sore thumb to the culture around it, to the society that was around it, the church in Smyrna would have been so incredibly different than the culture that was around them. And so because of that difference, because of of sticking out in society like this sore thumb, I believe that's why they suffered so much persecution and suffered so many trials and tribulations that we're going to be talking about in the rest of the text. Is there anything other background? One other thing, I would like to mention one other thing. Being a seaport city, it was of great wealth. It was a fairly new modern city. Uh, my understanding is from like the year 600 BC to 200 BC, there was actually no city at all that it had been overcome in a battle and had basically fallen off the map uh, and was rebuilt starting in somewhere around 200 BC. But again, it has some relevance, I think, to some of the things that we'll study. And it was known as a nickname for the city was the Crown of Asia. And because of these temples that sat along the edge of the, uh, the mountain that was surrounded it, so it was uh, figuratively a crown because it, it was so spectacular in its newness, uh, paved streets, things like that, but also because the way these temples sat on this hill and people referred to it as the crown of Asia. That crown's going to come into play a little bit later too. So as we look to the text, uh, obviously in our text tonight, in verse 11 we see this phrase, he who overcomes. And so this is a common thing that happens throughout every single letter that Jesus writes to the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, in the study we're going to be looking at, just look with me at, at all of the letters. We're just going to be looking uh, at a verse and not talking about them. But look at verse 7 of uh, what he wrote to Ephesus in chapter 2 in verse 7. It says, to him who overcomes. And then you have it in verse 11 of our Uh, church that we're talking about tonight, he who overcomes. And then you're having in verse 17 of the letter we're talking about next week, he who overcomes. In verse 26, in chapter 3 and verse 5, chapter 3 and verse 12, chapter 3 and verse 21. And so at the end of every single one of these letters, Jesus says the phrase, to he who overcomes, to them who overcome. And so evidently, Overcoming is a trait, a characteristic of a congregation that determines whether or not it is healthy or not. Jesus wouldn't write that very phrase to every single congregation that he wrote to if it wasn't important to him. The idea of overcoming different obstacles and challenges and difficulties is what Jesus is talking about. And so... The question I have for us tonight is, what does it look like for a congregation, for a church, to overcome 
different challenges and difficulties and obstacles that are placed in front of us. In particular, the church in Smyrna, the obstacle they were having to face being persecution. What are y'all's thoughts on that? I think overcoming makes all the difference. I mean, I think, I think that's the key, and that's the, the one aspect of a congregation that contributes the most to its longevity is, is the congregation, is this group of this body believers, are they able to overcome? And we don't have to look very far back in our own history to see how we had to overcome things. Just two years ago, we had a worldwide pandemic where everybody was overcoming the, some, the same exact issue, and some congregations did better than that than others. We, we, help, we all lost membership. You can look at all outside, you can look at the Church of Christ, you can look at denominations, and all, our, all congregations of God-believing people lost membership during COVID. But some groups are a little bit better, better at retention, at connection, at that kind of phasing back in plan, and those that were able to adapt and pivot and to do that were able to kind of bring back more of their number and to kind of get back that traction. I know just within the youth group, I feel like just now this year, our numbers have finally returned to what looked like pre-COVID. And so I, I think there may not be a more uh, important aspect of what kind of goes into longevity of a church outside of the ability to overcome. And so I think it's important. That it's, it's not a coincidence that Christ keeps talking about, okay, to he who overcomes because of what he's telling each congregation. And, and how I kind of broke down what he's telling each congregation is eternal problems and external issues. The internal problems are problems that they're, they're creating for themselves, right? The internal problems is Christ having to call them out. You, you've lost your first love. That's an issue within these walls, right? That's an issue that's inside that congregation. And that's an issue that we would all face, right? There are things that we have to overcome that are unique to us, that are in our heart, that are in our lives, right? And sometimes those are very difficult to overcome. Have you ever had someone come to you and ask you to, or, or, or reveal to you an issue in your life? Or, or tell you how you were wrong in that situation, or tell you how you're not doing enough in that situation, sometimes just that right there is a big enough obstacle that you can't overcome, right? And so Christ is having to call these, congreg call these congregations out on things they're not doing right, and saying, okay, this is what I called you all out on, and he who overcomes will have that crown, right? That's the internal side. And the other side, I don't want to take too much, the other side is the external problems, which we're going to be looking at tonight, that tribulation, that poverty, the, the, the things going on outside these walls that affect a congregation. And in both ways, he who overcomes is the most pivotal thing, that aspect, being able to overcome, pivot and adapt, but not change, but adapt, makes all the difference. And I think the answer to that, if I can, sorry for taking so much time, the answer to that is in John 16, We just find our identity in the one who overcome in the first place, right? John, the same writer of this, would say, these things I have spoken to you, Jesus saying this, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's why the church has been able to overcome everything for 2,000 years. Because our identity is found in someone that's already overcome everything. So we just got to keep with that. We adapt, we don't change who we are. I want to play off of that because... John 16 and verse 33 was exactly what I was thinking. That's your favorite passage, right? In the favorite Bible? Verse, yeah. So I'm glad you got to do that. But I, I, I want to continue on this thought of, of Christ being the head of the church and the head of the body, uh, which therefore gives us the ability to believe in ourselves that we can also overcome. And I love this word overcome because, like Jay was saying, I think it so accurately describes what life as a Christian looks like. 
Overcoming is exactly what it means to be a Christian. Every single day of our life is a battle of us overcoming something. Every day of our lives, we have a battle to overcome. Whether it be overcoming temptation, or overcoming Satan, or overcoming our own passions and desires, or overcoming the world, or overcoming society's agendas, whatever the case might be, all of us are having to overcome different things. We are having to face those different challenges and those difficulties and those obstacles, and we're having to make the conscious decision to persevere through them, to endure, to overcome, and to face those challenges head on. Every single day, a Christian is supposed to be at battle. Paul would say that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and darkness and rulers of the present age. Ephesians chapter 6. So when we look at the Christian life, every single day we are supposed to overcome. And guess what? In order to please God, we have to overcome. It's not an option. It's not like we can decide, well, I'm going to decide to just fail today and it's going to be all right. Christians are challenged and called upon and expected to overcome, to be a people that overcome these challenges. And I'm not trying to make light of these challenges. They are incredibly hard. The challenges that individual Christians face are incredibly hard and the odds are incredibly desperate when you try to overcome them alone. When you try to overcome them by yourself. The church, congregations face the same battles that individuals face. It's just on a larger scale. I think what we have to remember is, just like Jay was saying, is to overcome, we have to understand that the head of the church, the head of the body of Christ, is Christ. And He overcame. He overcame the challenges and He overcame the difficulties and He overcame the temptation and He overcame the world and He overcame Satan and He overcame death. He overcame everything. And so when we remember that, I believe it helps us remember that the victory is already won. The final victory over all of these different things has already been won. It also helps us remember that we are not in this alone. Jesus is in the battle with us. He was tested in all, like, in all points like as we are yet without sin. Jesus is right there in our foxhole beside us. And because He did it, I can do it. Because He lives in me. That's why I wear His name. That's why He gave us His name in the name Christian. And so when challenges come, whether it be individually or congregationally, I think... Christ has to be our focus. Christ has to be the thing that we look to, the person that we look to, to overcome. Those are, those are great comments and kind of exhaustive on that thought. Uh, I do think, when I think of overcome, I've always been fascinated by the writings of, of John because he was in that inner circle with Jesus. And I think when, when we want to get maybe the essence of who Jesus was, uh, we look to those that spent the most time that were closest to him. And I've always been fascinated by John, the Gospel of John, the, the three epistles, and, and here in Revelation. 
And one of the things that I always see in John's writing is his importance he put on obedience to Jesus. And it's not lost on me that he got that. Being there, I mean, if there's anybody that was going to preach, uh, you know, love and grace in the absence of anything else, it would be John if that's what, but he sensed, he knew that there was obedience required and he was inspired to write such in his, his writings too. When I live the word overcome, uh, when you look at it, it's, only mentioned maybe 25, 30 times in all of scripture. And John is responsible for over half of those mentions of the word overcome. So, so when I think of John, I think of his relationship with Jesus. He understood obedience. He also understood what it meant to overcome or to rise above, to rise above the trials, the difficulties and things like that. And, and to me, that, that gives meaning to the passage. He, he got it and he stressed it over and over again, uh, being inspired, those words were God breathed, but we know that that was an emphasis that John felt from his time with John. So, so this idea of overcoming, I mean, we see it. Uh, Jesus, I mean, God didn't offer special, uh, special protection for those that were closest to him. His apostles, we know all met with untimely deaths uh, through, through persecution, through martyrdom, except John, uh, ironically. But, uh, but I, I think that's, that's interesting, uh, that idea of overcoming, but I agree uh, specifically with everything else said. So when we look at verse 8, we have this very similar thing to what we saw last week in that Jesus introduces himself and says some things about himself uh, in a very particular way. What is special about the way Jesus uh, talks about himself and describes himself in verse 8. To me, I'll just go ahead and, and say it's really the same exact message that we talked about last week. I, I, maybe we don't need to belabor this point tonight, but it's the same message that we saw last week in that last week he is trying to help them understand who they're talking to. He's trying to help them understand who they're reading from and who is communicating to them and how important it is for them to listen. How important it is for them to take away this message of whatever is coming next. Whatever comes after this introduction, you need to listen up. And so again, remind ourselves what he says about himself. He says, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. What a powerful way to describe yourself if you're Jesus in this situation. He's saying, I'm the first and the last. When it comes to the grand scheme of things, there is nothing but me. I was there in the beginning, and I will be there at the end, and there is no end, and there is no beginning, all at the same time. When it comes to Jesus, I am the one who was dead and came back to life. He's reminding them who they're hearing from. He's reminding them exactly how much they need to listen up. And it, what comes next is not necessarily a, a, a tongue lashing by any means. But what comes next is a series of encouragement. Encouraging words to a church that was struggling. A church that was going through trials. And so I think it's very powerful for Jesus to say this and to introduce himself this way. Are there any more thoughts on that point? Well, <clears throat> the idea of uh, being the first and the last who was dead and came to life, one of the things that I mentioned, just the fact that this city was one that was once dead, but it had come to life and come to life in something that was much greater than it ever was before in wealth and, and fame and things like that. 
but it was also with that comes a lot of uh, uh, a lot of privilege, a lot of this idea that we have arrived. This is a city talking as secular like, and I think he wanted to remind these uh, these Christians here that would be uh, reading or were the object of this this uh, letter is that he's more important than all of this. Don't get caught up in this this earthly wealth that surrounds you. Uh, the, the attitudes of the people that surround you, don't get caught up in that. I was first, and I'll be the last one standing, and you're going to stand victorious with me if you remain faithful. So I, I'm, I'm struck by that. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 9, I know your works. Oh, did you have something to say? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I, I broke this saying down in two parts. The first part being, I, I, the, I am the first and the last. This is interesting because it's the third time Jesus has said this, just from the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, starting down in verse 8. I kind of see this, like, kind of like you said, as a call of reverence, reminding them, okay, this is who I am. It's also, I think, almost, it's a call to authority, just like when a mom or dad says, you know, I brought you into this world, I can, mm. I can, I, I can take you out, right? This is, I am the first and I am the last. And so I think this is a listen here type comment. But then the, ne the next comment I think is a lot more empathetic, is a lot more okay, and you want to listen to me as well. Because, like John was saying over here, this John, uh, who, has come to, who was dead, who has come to life, and I don't think it's coincidence that in two verses later he says, and some of you might die. Hmm. And, and what, what, what not a, who not a better person to listen to, if he's saying, okay, some of you are going to face tribulation, to the point of death, if all that, all that comment is coming from one who's saying, and I died because of this tribulation, but I have come back to life. And that's what I'm offering to you. So I think that's a call to authority, but also and I can empathize in your position more than you understand. Like I, I was about to say, uh, in verse 9, uh, we see Jesus say, I know your works. And then he goes on to talk about what they were known for. What was the church in Smyrna known for? And why is it important for us to know? Well, I, you know, one of the things that's sobering about that is him identifying that he knows their works in the first place. These people that uh, had not been exposed to, to Christ uh, as a man on this earth, uh, knowing that he knows, that he knows what they're going through, that he understands what they're going through. This uh, idea of what, one, he recognizes their works, which I think is of import, is that he sees uh, not only he sees their hearts, but it is showing itself in the works that they have uh, committed themselves. But this idea of tribulations, these tribulations that we're undergoing, which when you look at the word, is, it means this pressing in, this pressure that they were under. They were under immense pressure. And when you think about the pressure that they were under, it wasn't just from Romans who would naturally be, uh, you know, have their interest in their own gods and would think anybody that thinks of this uh, God of the Hebrews or or whatever was the reigning supreme, that they would be under pressure from those folks. But the pressure that would have come from the Jews, you know, I, I think back to the times when people disappointed me and maybe a friend at school who I was looking to for, for uh, support, you know, just betrayed me. You know, it, they would feel some kinship, I would think, still to the Jews, yet in this city, the Jews we're gonna see, and we, we can learn from secular history too, would have been terribly opposed to the Christians. So they truly were being pressed in from all sides. They were undergoing tribulations that, that maybe would be difficult uh, for us to understand. We see, we see the pressure coming at us in this world, but it's not necessarily among religious folks. It's coming from secular people, people that have no faith. Uh, yet they were being pressed in from all sides. 
So what I see from verse 9, especially when he talks about uh, what they're known for, I know your works. Uh, you see that tribulation and that pressure that, that John's talking about being applied to all sides of, of them as a congregation. But to me, what's beautiful about the church in Smyrna is amidst that tribulation, what does he say? I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. What is he trying to say right there? Do they have a lot of money? Uh, no, he's saying even amid, among all this tribulation and trial and challenges and difficulties and obstacles, you've maintained your joy. In the midst of all of these tribulations, you have held on to that hope and that joy and that happiness and that love that will keep you through this tribulation. To me, the church in Smyrna was known for joy in the midst of tribulation. Jesus commends them for being the, the rich in the midst of all of this destitution around them. Spiritual destitution and all the different challenges that are going on in their life. Even though they were facing those tremendous obstacles, they remained joyful, they remained happy. And I think it's because they found their fulfillment, they found their satisfaction, they found all of the things that needed to keep them going, they found that pleasing God was all that mattered. They knew they were never going to be popular in the culture and the community around them and society around them. All that mattered to them was doing what was right. Obedience. Obeying the Word and, and applying it into their everyday life. So to me, what the church in Smyrna was known for was having a joy in the midst of tribulation. You know, both Peter, Paul, and John all write to groups of Christians who are either about to face tribulation or are facing tribulation. So that aspect in verse 9 is not, as, not, not that unique that the people that John is writing to, this congregation that Jesus is uh, addressing here, is, okay, you're about to go through tribulation. So we find that in a lot of epistles all throughout the text. But it's a lot more unique, that second comment, he says, and I know your poverty. And I thought that was pretty interesting because, we, like we were talking about earlier, Smyrna is known for being a very rich city, right? It's a port city. It's the crown of Asia. It was known for, for its wealth. And so I think that kind of presents us a couple things we can take away from that. And one is that that's how much they would have stuck out in, in this area. Well, one, let me, let me start with this. How, how can they be so poor in such a rich city, right? How can, you, how can a whole group of Christians, all of them, not just some of the members, but they, this whole, the church of Smyrna, is known for being poor in the midst of a very, very wealthy city. Now, and so I was reading up on this a little bit, and I, and I read, came across Hebrews 10.34, when the author this, there says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have yourselves a better possessions and a lasting one. And I wonder if that's what's happening here. That in the midst of a city that's known for its pagan worship, for its emperor worship, that as this small group of believers are becoming one, that the city is stripping them away from their possessions, stripping them away from their finances, from their families, from their jobs, or whatever it may be. And we can only can, you know, assume that, but somehow, the, one of the things that Christ mentions knowing about this congregation is how poor they are. And the word used here isn't just, okay, they're lower income. This is a word that kind of more comes with it, like at the level of begging, right? That some of these probably would not, they would have been homeless and not you know, having a secured income by any means. So I thought that was pretty interesting, especially in contrast of what you were talking about, Ben. This is a poor church that's actually rich. 
And this is the exact opposite of Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 17. It says, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor. And so then you have this, this neat kind of um, connection between are you a poor, rich church, or are you a rich, poor church? And so then, okay, then I start thinking, okay, who would I rather be? You know, would I, would, would I rather be a, uh, a poor, rich man where I have a lot of finances and I have a lot of means, but my life, my joy, my, my peace is poor? Obviously, I think I'd rather be opposite of that. I think I'd rather have nothing but be rich in love and rich in peace and rich in comfort and, and the deeds of righteousness. And so I, I love this connection that we see between these two letters here, Laodicea and uh, Smyrna here. That This is a poor church, but like you were saying, it's a rich, poor church. Mm. Let's look at verse 10. It, it talks about all the things that they are about to endure uh, and when we look at verse 10, I think we often look at uh, the very last sentence of verse 10. And we take it out and we want to hold on to it and, and use it as uh, this ticket of the rest of your life after you're baptized. You just be faithful unto death. There you go. And we use that as the whatever sixth step in the steps of salvation, you know. And, and we say, be faithful unto death. There it is. My question tonight is, when you look at the larger context of the whole verse 10, what's actually being said? Well, I wouldn't, I, I, in talking about verse 10, I want to pay a little attention to this, and you will have tribulation 10 days. Uh, of course, if you've studied Re Revelation and the, the symbolic numbers that are, 10 days, I mean, obviously, we're not talking a literal 10 days what they would be undergoing here. But I think it was meant to provide some sort of encouragement to these Christians in that 10 being the idea of completeness, but giving a specific number like that, maybe implying that uh, while it's, it's going to go on and it's going to be possibly really complete uh, persecution, maybe even to the point of death, that God knows there's an end to it that it's not going to go on forever, that there's going to be a definite time, and that's why there was a very specific time there, but not realistically thinking all Christians are going to have this 10-day period of persecution. Uh, but getting to your, your question on that, being faithful unto death, I think it was meant very literal. I think it was meant very literal that, uh, that they were being persecuted to the point of, um, you know, we have a lot of secular history where they were asked to, to uh, deny Christ and deny their faith. And Jesus is telling them, do it, be willing to do that to death because there's a reward that awaits you. And that, that is within context of the rest of scripture we have that's telling us that you know, our sufferings are just for a little time. But, uh, but I think it's, it's literal there, the actual being willing to go to death. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I think we can see here in that they're not promised an easy tribulation. They're not promised that this, this be faithful unto death is going to be this easy is this easy decision or easy path, whatever it may be, it's just a, a check of reality saying, okay, the tribulation is coming, and it's a very real, it's a call to realism here that this is happening, it's coming soon, and, but there's a beginning and an end to it possibly, that 10-day type thing going on that there's an end to this, whether it is an end, a crown of righteousness, or an end, and you can move on from that. But I definitely don't want to detract from the thought that this is something that all of us should be aspiring to, to be faithful unto death. Absolutely. But like John and Jay are saying, I, I fully believe that this is talking about Jesus saying, be faithful to the very point 
of losing your life. Be faithful to me and to the cause and to the gospel and to the church to the very point of losing your life and becoming a martyr for the church and for me. I think he's definitely saying remain faithful and committed to the cause till the very end. And the truth is, it is much more than him just saying, keep going to worship and keep doing all the things uh, that I say. It's, it's saying, you be faithful to the very point that your life is taken from you. Whatever that looks like. However gruesome a death it may be, you have to be willing to go and die for me. Isn't that fair, though? Isn't that fair for Jesus to say? Because he was the one that was willing to do it himself. He was faithful in the death to you. And what he's calling them to be is just do the same thing he was willing to do for them. He's saying, listen, you're go some of you are going to lose your life over this. But I promise you, if you do, you will get the crown of life at the end. And so Jesus doesn't guarantee that the church in Smyrna are going to have a painless first death. But he does guarantee that they won't have to worry about a second one. And so in verse 11 when he says, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What is the implication of this statement and its significance? I'm going to say something extremely simple here. I feel yeah. like this was just a final charge of encouragement. Saying, okay... I can't guarantee a painless first death, and okay, so there's this tribulation coming. I'm sure it's already happening around them. They're, they're, they're poverty-stricken, right? But I can guarantee that or you're going you're gonna to experience that, but the second death, that's, that's, that time of separation from God, you will not have to experience that, right? And so I think it's this final charge of Christ of encouragement, saying, okay, if anything else, I can give you this hope, Right? This may hurt now, but I promise you in the end that this will be worth it. And so I think it's the, you know, it's the final in this amazing, it seems to belittle it by saying a pep talk here, but in this amazing encouragement letter to this congregation that's about to enter a very difficult period, it's this final comment saying, okay, here's your final um, piece of something you can hold on to through this. I see uh, the same thing with, and I thought about the song, Heaven Will Surely Be Worth It All. And... What a powerful song that is, and I, I believe that's the thought here, that you are going to die your first death, but the promise of having no death spiritually, the second death, makes heaven worth it all. In a song, I, I'm just hoping that I remember it, but heaven will surely be worth it all, worth all the sorrows that here befall. After this life, with all its strife, heaven will surely be be worth it all. And so I, I think that's such a powerful thought. And all, how many of our songs that we sing are about heaven? You know, I was blown away the other day. We were singing as a family to my grandmother. Uh, as a family, we were singing around her bed before she passed. And I was shocked at how many songs had to do with heaven. 
we all commented afterwards how many of those songs had to do with heaven. And there's a reason we sing those songs. There's a reason we focus and we put our thoughts on those songs and, and, and we sing those songs and we never grow tired of those songs. And why is that? Because that's the reason we're doing all this. That's the reason you're here tonight. That's the reason that you drag your kids out and you put them in a car seat and you bring them up here kicking and screaming because heaven is going to be worth it all and we want to get there. And so tonight, I think it's very encouraging for us to think about Jesus saying, you will not be hurt by the second death if you overcome. Because heaven will surely be worth it all. That's good stuff. Uh, you know, this, uh, going back just a little bit there to verse 10 when he's talking about this crown of life, and, you know, we all have pictures uh, in our minds maybe when we read scripture and this crown of life, yeah, I, I imagine those things. I imagine it maybe in a more physical term. Not this crown of ruling that we're going to receive, but this crown of victory. The, the crown that, that you see that's made out of leaves or vines or things like that to, to designate somebody that's overcome, someone that's risen above, someone that has won a victory. And then I see this, this idea of not being hurt by the second death being this is, this is the award. You know, with, with being the victor, Typically, there's something that comes with it, not just a crown, but some kind of, it might have been a monetary award or something, or, but this is not being hurt by the second death. They're, they're sitting there looking in the eyes the first death. They're, they're being encouraged. You know, to me, uh, let's, just, let's just say what happens when something terrible here on this earth happens? We, we hear non-believers that say something to the effect, where was God during this? Where was you know, how could this happen? When people are undergoing great trials, where was your God? Why didn't your God save you? And I think, you know what? Jesus answered that before he ever said, you better be prepared for death because he said, I know you. I know your works. We're not alone. God knows what we're going through. God knows the things that we're, we're seeing, that we're enduring. God, God sees the difficulty, and he knows that. And so when he says, be faithful unto death, that's something we can take to heart, knowing that he understands that. He understands what he's saying. And then this promise that we're not going to be hurt by the second death, there's the reward. There's the reward knowing that uh, what, if we're not going to be hurt by second death, that means we're going to be given life. And we know that we're going to be given life eternal. And what an encouragement it would have been to these people that are just, um, they're being pressed from every side, that they're undergoing great tribulation. But it's going to be over soon. It's going to be over soon. As we look to ourselves tonight and, and we go out into the community I, and we apply this lesson to our life, I want to ask the question the same way we're going to ask you every single week in this study, and that is, how can the Buford Church of Christ be like the church in Smyrna? How, how, can, how can we be like the church in Smyrna when it comes to how they responded uh, to their trials? You know, one thing I noticed about this letter is that there's not a criticism. And it's one of only two, out of the seven, there's only two congregations that don't have a criticism. It's here and in Philadelphia. And, and I love that when Christ is writing to the church at Smyrna, the only thing he's focused on, there's nothing that he has to criticize here. The only thing he's focused on is tribulation's coming. Life's not going to get easier. Just put your head down and keep working, right? Just keep working. And I think it's extremely humbling to me that people who read this letter 
You know, this is maybe odd. I don't think about this often, but this would have been a letter that these congregations would have read and read aloud and heard and passed around. People that sat in pews, maybe not like these, right? People who sat around in a room and read this letter, some of them passed away. Some of them experienced the first death, maybe not even that long after reading this letter. And so I think it's very humbling to me tonight that the, the words I'm reading right now were heard by Christians who ended up giving up their life for their faith. And it's hard to compare maybe what our congregation will be going through over the next 10 years, right, Lord willing, when it comes to our economy, our world, the society, whatever it may be. And there's going to be time of we need to be better here and there needs to be time and we need to kind of shape it up there or fix this and fix that. But I think ultimately what, how Beaufort Church of Christ can look like Smyrna is things are probably not going to get any easier, right? We need to keep our head down and we need to keep working and we need to do the best we can to be a light for the kingdom and to never give up in everything that we've done. Uh, I agree completely. I think uh, we're, we're free of persecution at this point, but there's no promises that we're going to be preserved from that, that we're going to be saved from that in the future. You know, I, I agree with Jay. I think that, that we have a responsibility, like was in this letter, to overcome. And does it mean, you know, what's our existence going to be as we come in the coming years? I know we're all afraid. We all watch the news. We all see how, uh, you know, black has become white and up has become down, that we can't uh, uh, even differentiate between men and women. And there's uncertainty and there's fear. And there's fear, maybe you have fear like I have fear, is how, how I'm going to handle it uh, when I'm confronted with it. I had to... And this is this is kind of a, a sad story about me, but we had one of our uh, our magnets got washed off our car in the car wash. You know, our Buford Church of Christ magnet. And I picked up another one. I was going out to put that on. And you want to know the thought I had? Is this going to hurt me by putting this on my car? Am I going to come across somebody that knows what we believe and what we teach and what uh, our faith in scripture that someday they might just want to take it out on me and that thought crossed my mind and I thought how sad that is especially when I compare it to what I'm reading about what is going on here in Smyrna and I think you know what I need to know now because uh, the Lord knows my heart he knows my works and am I afraid to wear uh, the the kinship of Christ to where people know it and I'm not afraid to do that and I'm going to do that but I need to know now I need to take confidence from the same things he said to the people at Smyrna is that that he knows us he hasn't left us he's there with us he sees uh, what we're going through but his expectation for us is that we should be faithful unto death and that same same image applies to us that same uh encouragement applies to us that we need to be willing to, to sacrifice our lives for that and certainly uh, our, our, our jobs you know maybe our homes someday that those things they're not important when it comes to the comparison of avoiding the hurt of that second death last thing I'll say is when we look at the church in Smyrna like these guys are saying we have to ask ourselves the question how do we respond to conflict how do I respond to obstacles and challenges and difficulties and even persecutions? How do I respond to all of those tribulations in my life? 
Do I maintain my joy and my hope and my love for the world and for its people and for the lost and for the church and for the Lord? Or do I allow that trial to make me bitter? Do I allow that trial to beat me down to the point that I give up? The church in Smyrna did not give up. As far as we know, from this letter at least, Jesus believed that they would overcome. I wonder if he would have the same confidence in you and I tonight. That if persecution came, we would overcome. That's the question all of us have to ask ourselves tonight as we leave and as we go out into the world. Would Jesus think we were like the church in Smyrna? Or would we run away from all those trials? I think it's very encouraging to look at the letters that Jesus writes. And each week we're going to be challenged with the thoughts that Jesus gives. But this week more than ever, I think it's very important for us to try to suspend our reality of what we think is actually possible when it comes to persecution and uh, all the things that might come in the future and put ourselves in their shoes and ask, what would I do? What am I going to do if this comes to my home? I'm going to ask John Burnett to lead us in closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time together, Lord. We thank you for the promises that you've made to us, the promises you've made to us about eternal life, about the crown of life that uh, we are set to receive. We're faithful to you, and Lord, we pray that everything we do uh, brings glory to you and to your Son, that we uh, uh, are your hands and feet here on this earth, that others uh, might come to know the good news of your Son because of the the way we treat them, the way we love them, the way we treat each other. Lord, we're thankful for this country we live in, the freedoms that we enjoy, but we know that that's not a promise that uh, we'll have forever. Lord, we pray that you will uh, protect us, but if, if the time comes for us to be harmed physically or financially, we pray that you will protect us spiritually, that we'll just uh, be stronger, that we'll cling to you, that we'll know you're near always, no matter what difficulties surround us. Lord, come to you uh, specifically right now on behalf of one of our members, uh, Skip Jackson. We know that he is really struggling right now, that the doctors are working so hard to, to preserve his life. But we know that, uh, that Skip has his crown promised to him, and we pray that you will, you will bless him during this time. If it's your will that he be with us here for, for many more years, we pray that that would happen. But, Lord, we, whatever the case, we pray that you will be with him, that you'll be with Deborah during these uh, difficult times, that, uh, that uh, he will be victorious either over this, uh, this uh, sickness that uh, racks his body or that he'll be victorious over uh, sin and death. Lord, we're thankful uh, for the, the promises that you make to us that all come through your son, and that's through his name we pray. Amen.